Nana. And I'm Monkeo. And this is African.American. This is a show about children of African immigrants living in the United States. Oh, now you use the shortened version again. Okay, great. Because <laughs> we had a tagline and then you started adding all these other things. We get it. It's, you know, people from Africa. Every season you know, it's new. Children you know, it of African on, immigrants. It depends on the spirit of everyone here. Who are African immigrants. Millennials who are African immigrants. Gen Z. Immigrants themselves. Because I need to make sure that I'm included in this conversation. Came here at 12. You yes, are the I, child I of African immigrants. Go through, you know, this is a hate. Bonquillo is a hater. You did not buy a plane ticket from Ghana and bring yourself here. Just, just, how, just, how do you know? Just embrace. Bonquillo, goodbye. Um, hi. <laughs> hi there, Steph. <laughs> we have a special hi. guest with us. We'll be talking about POC solidarity today with her. Steph, say hi. Introduce yourself. Sure. I'm Steph, and I grew up in the Bay Area, Cupertino, which nobody knew before Apple became a thing, and then suddenly it was on everyone's map. And yeah, moved to went to college with Nana and Bonkio, and that's about it. Chinese American or Taiwanese American, depending on who you're talking to and their politics. Thing. Why? Why do you say both? Because I've all, I, I usually meet people and they're like, I'm Taiwanese or I am Chinese. Are your parents like from both places or? Yeah. So a big part of why is it depends on whether you count yourself as Bunshengren, so someone who was native born, if you will. And what that means is I think the dividing line was like 1950, 1951. So if you came before that, you are considered legitimately Taiwanese, if you will. If you, if you came, came to Taiwan before that time. Yeah. If you came after, you're considered an outsider because you're associated with the Nationalist Party. So my dad went to, he fled to Taiwan with his family. My mom's side, they escaped to Taiwan as well, but she was born in Taiwan. And then she moved to Canada when she was 10. So she definitely grows up. Her memories of Taiwan are from like 50, 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of her identity. She actually doesn't know much about her Chinese heritage from mainland. But for that reason, I'm Chinese and Taiwanese. But I know that people have much stronger feelings on it. So I try to be respectful of that. And I don't claim Taiwanese identity if I know the person I'm talking to sees themselves as like native Taiwanese. Got you. Thank you. That's really interesting because I did not know that. Um, I guess then, so then the answer to the next question might be kind of interesting to hear. I mean, all of them will be, because that's why we have you here. But how diverse were your, was your friend group growing up? And, you know, how active were you in seeking diverse friendships, both within the Chinese Taiwanese community and sort of outside of that? Yeah, I think growing up, I definitely remember it wasn't until kindergarten that I actually realized there's like other types of East Asians, which I know sounds absurd, but when you're five or six and that's all you've grown up with, that's all you know. And I remember kindergarten first day, I met someone and I was like, oh my gosh, how exciting, because it was quite a couple of white kids and then there was one other Asian girl and I was like, oh, she must be Chinese. She's actually Japanese. <laughs> Mm -hmm. oh, there's <laughs> different types of people. Um, but I think growing up, most of my friends were largely Asian, so whether Southeast Asian, primarily East Asian. And then I had a couple of friends who 
I have one friend who is Persian, but I would say like predominantly Asian, even at the schools that I went to, Asian, South Asian and East Asian were the majority. And then you had like the other groups sprinkled in as kind of minorities, if you will. Right. And it actually, yeah, there was a point. uh, So I went to a private school in the Bay Area and I remember they were doing advertisements and they actually, for these TV ads, they actually pulled the few white kids in the ad and they're like, we need to even out the demographics a little bit. Yeah, that's Bay Area, I guess. It's kind of that's interesting when you put the white kids in the ad for diversity. Yeah. <laughs> so then, wait, just um, going back to your family, did you grow up like speaking Chinese and going to I don't know what to call it, maybe Saturday school or Chinese like Chinese language yeah. school? Like those were. Were those your experiences? Yeah, so there was a point in when I was pretty young, this was like probably kindergarten to third grade, where I had three different Chinese schools that I went to. So I went to one after American school. Yeah, so every day after school, I went to one. Um, And then I went to Friday night school and Saturday morning school. And then they all got kind of pulled back when I switched schools because there was after school programming. So I just went to Friday night Chinese school, which was two hours. And I always joke like that was the parents way of keeping their kids out of trouble because it's seven to 9pm on a Friday night through high school. (laughs) Uh, are, are you primarily learning language or what are you learning at these night schools? Yeah, so it really varied on your teacher. Like I had one teacher who the first hour was textbooks, right? So reading, writing, speaking. And then the second hour was ghost stories. And it actually turns out this teacher happened to be my one of my good friend's cousins. I didn't realize this until later. So the curriculum varied quite a bit. There were definitely proficiency tests. I, and I know Nana's going to make fun of me for this, but I was a debater in the first few years of high school. So I missed quite a few Chinese classes for tournaments Mm -hmm. because of that. I definitely fell behind towards the end. And I think I kind of regret that because my language skills are not as strong as they should be. And because my mom grew up in in Taiwan until she was 10, but really formative years in Canada, that meant growing up, we primarily spoke English at home. And she's actually, with the advent of YouTube and all of this, she's actually watching a lot more Chinese television now and learning a lot more about her culture in her older years. That's still lovely. It's never it's never too late. I can relate to that. My mom, basically, my, my first language was English because hers kind of was. Um, they weren't allowed to speak their language at home, so they, in the house, they spoke it in the streets. And so, like... I, I I can relate to that piece. Not everybody can speak tree. Like, is it tree? Am I saying it right, Nana? Tree. tree. Just on tree. three years, you cannot, you can still not get it right. Um, Look. I'm, I'm just not going to bother. Just, you know, just. You know, my- it's about. The quality of the teacher, <laughs> so if I can't get that, it's a reflection on who is teaching me. It's not a reflection on who no, I it's am. It's a reflection of the student. <laughs> you sound like a typical African mom. <laughs> Do you have a goat for brains? <laughs> 
(laughs) But the next question, (laughs) how, if at all, did you discuss racism or race with, I guess, the sprinkling of white friends that you had since your school was pretty heavily Asian? Yeah, so actually, as I was looking at this and thinking about it last night, I was like, I don't think I had that many close white friends in high school. Maybe even now, (laughs) I wouldn't say they're the majority. I feel like we didn't, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I don't think we actually discussed racism that much in high school. I talked about it with my mom. We talked about affirmative action and things like that. But in high school, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think we were wrapped up in other things or I was like focused on my high school view of Amnesty International and all of that in a way that this didn't manifest. I think now those conversations are much more present, but again, primarily with Asian American friends that I grew up with. Well, that makes sense if that's the majority of people that you're growing up around and if your community isn't thinking about, I mean, it makes sense not to be thinking about that necessarily as 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 young children. I guess but in the next question. That, oh, sorry, Monkey. No, go ahead, Nance, if you have a. At what point did that change for you? Because I remember um, being in college, I thought you had the most diverse friends that I saw you have. You know, you you had Asian friends, you had African friends, you had African-American friends, you had white friends. And sometimes I was like, how does, and I still say it now, how does Steph move from some of these friend groups are very kind of culturally similar. Homogenous. And she... She moves from place to place and it's just, and she fits in. She looks different. It's like this Chinese, this Taiwanese American or Chinese American girl, you know, sitting over there with African kids, just, you know, chilling and talking like they're old friends. And it's just, how do you do that? When did that change for you? It's a good question. And now that you mentioned it, I do think about how, so one of the things that I did in high school, and I forget how I learned about this group, but there was a group called Girls for a Change. It's now, I think the name has changed and so has the mission, but in that group, I was part of the steering committee, which actually was quite diverse, but I think it had fallen out of my brain because that was much heavier maybe in my junior year. And that group was diverse, right? It was a whole mix of folks. You had Latinx, um, there were definitely South Asians, women who were hijabi. And I remember like, you know, this is when we decided that we needed to go into Afghanistan when we were in high school and reading a lot of the media and having a lot of questions, right? What does Islam actually say beyond what's reported in the media. And I remember having some of these conversations with uh, two of the sisters in the group. And I feel like just kind of going in, like having done my own research, Google wasn't as great as it was, but you know, still was the starting place and buying a lot of books and just talking to folks to get a sense of what's really happening versus what I'm reading helped kind of get me into that practice. And I actually remember going to a masjid with um, one of them and talking to someone, like to a father, actually, it turns out, of someone I went to high school with. I didn't even know. (laughs) Um, And he was explaining to me, he was Palestinian and talking me through, like, this is why suicide bombers will resort to what they do, right? Not just walking through, here's what the scenario is. Let me give you a sense of what that perspective is. And I think that really pushed me to kind of think differently. 
Um, and I will give credit to my mom, even though she regularly jokes that I'm like a raging feminist and this is why everyone's scared of me. <laughs> she, People are scared of you. <laughs> she bought a ton of books for me to read about girl power, empowerment, history. And we always grew up talking about a lot of different cultures, had the benefit of traveling quite a bit. And so I think with that, I mean, I remember going to a Seder dinner, which is not common for mm. most Chinese families to yeah. go to Seder dinner. But because of her curiosity, I think that pushed me as well to be more thoughtful. Oh, that's actually really beautiful. And I would say kudos to you because you're using like the correct terms in the correct places. She said masjid, masjid is mosque. I'm just like, okay, all right, all right. No, because these are, li- these are little details that people don't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a reflection of like going further and learning more. And big ups to you. You actually got invited to a Seder. I always seem to not get. <laughs> and I used to date a conservative Jewish person and they'd just be like, nah, you don't want to go. Hey, I want to. I wanna... Well, to, to be I fair, this be one was <laughs> this one that my mom got was this was for like a Wolfgang Puck dinner. So lots of people were like, mm, should he even be holding a Seder? So Is there was Jewish? a lot. I'm not sure. Sh- I think he's Austrian. I'm not sure. How- this was part of the contentiousness of like, should he uh, be hosting it? But there were a lot of Jewish families. We were the only Chinese mom and daughter there. <laughs> but one of my friends did invite me to a Seder dinner after that as well. And my mom was like, my mom loves Jewish food. It's She loves matzo balls, gefilte fish. And I've told Jewish colleagues and they're like, sorry, what? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's what my Jewish friends would be like. They'd be like, Satyrs are long. Why do you. Why, w- w- no. I'm like, but I want to experience the culture. So, yeah, big ups to you for that. I oh. guess <laughs> our next question is um, probably more specific related to, well, it does um, relate to Black folk, but like, how would you describe your community's attitudes towards the Black community specifically growing up? Keeping in mind that Cupertino, I guess, is probably like 0.01. I don't know what the ratio is, but it's probably not very, <laughs> there's probably one Black kid in your school. There's probably one Black kid in the school in Cupertino today, too. <laughs> Yeah, so I thought about this. I remember uh, my first year at Wellesley, maybe it was later on, there was an allyship uh, like event or something. And one of the events that was held by Ethos, which is the Students of African Descent Association, I think I'm characterizing that correctly, but you both can correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. was... Kind of like a Black student union. Yeah. Schools may have, yeah. Um, and they asked a question of like, what are the negative stereotypes that you have of black people? And what I found interesting was like, actually growing up, we did have a couple of black students in my schools, but like two or three, right? Very, very token. And I wasn't friends with them because they were the popular kids and I was not in the popular group by like, a, I mean, not even close. It's definitely like at the bottom. <laughs> um, and I think about it now because at the time I was like wow they're always like very athletic also top of the class they were always the exceptional ones if you will Mm -hmm. and so I think growing up I didn't really have that many perceptions beyond that but I do know from talking to my parents and I've had lots of heated arguments with my mom about 
affirmative action, there is a lot of anti-blackness in the Asian community. There's been a lot of really, really great efforts around this that we've seen since, I think, like 2014, 2015. You've seen tons of translations of letters. Um, and I think a big part of that is because when a lot of Asian immigrant parents are coming to the States, prior to getting here, you don't have any actual exposure. The only exposure you have is media. And we all know how amazing media is. I'm not talking about now where you have like the Issa Rays and Lena Waithe and all of that media, yeah. but what's mainstream accessible. And if that's what you know, like this is why Chimamanda talks about the danger of a single story, right? If that's all you know, how can you think differently until you actually start to complicate that narrative and meet real people. Um, and I've definitely been guilty of like bringing friends home and like, well, and they're very good friends, but also I'm like, oh, look, look at like this person, which I know is bad, but in some ways it's like, this is my parents' first interaction with like non-Chinese folks. They don't have these folks in their circles. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hey, th these people are not just statistics or media headlines, like very rich, very complicated, different stories. And you need to remember the humanity there before then. It makes it harder to make a generalization. Not saying it's perfect. I'm sure there's lots of flaws with this, but. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so basically, it's it's kind of like trying to give a human face to something. Um, yeah. And people do, um, for better or for worse, human beings are able to better identify with something when they can put a face to it, when it's not just like a name or number. Um, I guess a follow-up to that question would be, um, what kind of has been your understanding of your community's take on the African or the Caribbean, kind of basically like the immigrant black folk versus African-Americans. Um, asking that, because obviously that's what we talk about on the show. And some of these ideas or negative ideas about the African-American community are alive and well in African and Caribbean um, communities as well. Um, and so we do um, often have to actively think about like, wait, what is going on here? Why is this like this? Um, and kind of contrast it with the idea, I guess there's also this idea of, like you like you pointed out, right? Like the images of what people see and that's what they grow with. And then at the same time, these same communities, like we get mad about how we are portrayed by the same media. So it's very interesting that like, we can, you know, for Africans, we can bemoan that like coming to America is what a lot of people think is like Africa, right? Or Shaka Zulu or something like that. And then at the same time we go, oh, but bad boys and I can't think of anything else, but you know, Martin or whatever these shows, you know, uh, Flavor Fla that Flavor of Love, like that, that we accept <laughs> as being like, and emblematic of like the african-american community um so i don't know what your your kind of like i guess one what does your community think about like the think about in terms of the diversity of the black community or is there a distinction between immigrant versus native born and then to like i don't know your thoughts on this like how we both believe the media and are like ugh, the media sucks <laughs> yeah it's a great question. I realize this is probably slightly off track, but as you've been asking me about my community, part of it made me think, and I was like, oh, I don't know what my community is, which sounds ridiculously mm -hmm. existential, but I think 
to Nana's point, because I would say like my social circles are sort of a patchwork of folks from very different backgrounds. I don't know if I have one kind of singular view that emerges per se, so I can best speak to maybe my parents' views, but beyond that, I'm sort of ashamed to say, like, I don't know too much else about other friends. Like, they haven't really articulated, right, specific views on African immigrants. I know that when my parents uh, and some of my relatives came for my graduation, and my mom still jokes about this, my uncle asked her, like, does Steph have other friends? Like, how come all of her friends are from Africa? Because <laughs> they have, I mean, a lot. Yeah, very good question, <laughs> Uncle. Oh, wow. <laughs> but uh, along with that, and I was like, I have other friends too. Okay, thank you. I have a diverse group. But. Um, I think for my mom, her perception of Africans who come to the States is generally like, especially for college, right? Because that's the context by which I know most folks, just like they must be really well off. You have to have been really elite and like really smart or really wealthy to get to the point where you can be able to emigrate over here. Um, And she actually came to visit me in Kenya and I was also a little bit nervous because, like, didn't really okay. want her to... <laughs> Rewind. You were in Kenya? So, wait, you were living in Kenya? You were studying in Kenya? How long were you in Kenya? So, I lived in Nairobi for a little bit under two years, and I was working there. I went after grad school. Um, I was working at a company called Bridge International Academy, so run a large network of low-cost private schools at the time just in Kenya, but now they've expanded elsewhere. Um, And she came kind of towards the end of my stay there when I was planning to move back because all of her other friends suddenly like different Botswana is the one that she talks about all the time because she has two friends who went on the safari and they saw all these amazing animals. And she was like, how come we didn't see that when we went to the Mara? And I was like, I'm not, we're not having this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Take you there. (laughs) But I think it really complicated her and my dad's view. He didn't come on that same trip, but he took a separate trip. It made them think differently about what Kenya looks like, what Tanzania is, because oftentimes you see these like, was I forget the NGO, but those ads with you know what Trevor Noah has made fun of, like the flies on the face and all of that. And instead, she saw, like, really nice malls. She joked with me. She said, I can see why you don't want to come home. Your apartment is way more palatial in Nairobi mm-hmm. than you would be able to get. <laughs> um, we had Chinese food, right? It's a much more diverse and cosmopolitan space than most people here think there is. It doesn't mean it's without problems in the same way the U.S. isn't without many problems. but. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think she does talk about this quite a bit with her friends as well now. So they start to build out what is this idea of Africa? It's many countries. Here's nuggets that I've experienced. Some are scary. Some are really beautiful. And you just have a much more nuanced view of things. It's not just a safari. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I've never been on a safari. I've never been to East Africa. So kudos to you. And thank you for... (laughs) giving them that experience again I think it's it's kind of connected to that same idea of like once you meet people who fit a certain character you know have a certain background that you only knew through stats 
or through pictures or video, it changes the whole story because you you've humanized it in a lot of ways. Um, so we know that you've you've lived in Kenya, um, but when you were in college, did you take I guess did you take Asian studies or African studies or Latin? Uh, would it be Latin. It's not. Wouldn't be Latinx. That's not what it was called when we were in college. Latin, like, what do we call it? Because I feel like California has like Chicano studies, but Chicano is still different. That's not all of. Yeah. Basically, classes on the Latin. Latin American studies was what it was. But that's, but that's like about. But I think that's what it was in called. There. Oh, okay. I don't think we had. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. Say that as the Spanish major who only took classes on Spain. <laughs> Yikes. Wow. <laughs> I took I took one because they said you had to do at least one, but that was it. My my advisor was from Spain and so that's why I focused on there. Yeah, so my first year I took images of Africana in cinema and I loved that class. Honest, I learned a lot and I remember not remembering I think Professor Rollins's names because she had met I was like late for a class. And when I didn't remember, I remember Professor Obang being like, that is so disrespectful that you didn't think she was important enough to remember her name. And it was genuinely like I had heard her name twice and I felt so terrible. But after that, with the exception of a couple instances where I've like genuinely forgotten people, which not great, but <laughs> that taught me a lot, right, about um, just honoring folks' names. But I really liked that class for what it taught me about cinema, about representation, and the notion of duologue. I actually remember um, Sankofa and actually mm-hmm. writing about Sankofa in one of my grad school essays because it had such an impact on me. Um, so yeah, that was one class I took. I also took a class on race and ethnicity in Asian America with one of my all-time favorite professors, Julie Chu, um, which was also really interesting for thinking about how Asian American identity has been constructed in the U.S. And it was really validating because I think mm-hmm. growing up, I didn't, so for context, my parents came here, but their families also, we didn't really, we don't really have that many connections anymore to Taiwan and China. That's changed in maybe the last 10, 15 years, but growing up, we didn't have family. So for a lot of my peers who went back and were in touch with pop culture, it, they knew what was happening. They had like contemporary con- culture from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> Mm. And this class really broke apart the idea of one type of Asian American or what it meant to be Chinese American for the first time that I hadn't felt growing up. Because growing up, I always felt like I'm not Chinese enough. I don't speak the language well enough. I never know the cultural references because I don't have family to visit. That tie isn't there for me. And I think that was really liberating and also helped to allow me to say, you know what, it's fine. I don't have to be one way. But yeah, I appreciated having those classes. So do you think that, um, so there's this term racial melancholia. And it's like, uh, it has to do with the feeling of like having lost your language or your culture. And I guess in hearing you talk about this um, Asian studies class, we wanna, yeah, just kind of asking as a follow-up to that, like, do you feel, one, do you feel like you had melancholia or are you like, you, you I don't wanna say suffered from, but whatever. You suffered from racial melancholia in terms of like how you grew up and being disconnected from mainland 
China or mainland Taiwan. I don't know if you say mainland Taiwan. Um, and then, like, did that, did the class give that back to you? Um, yeah, I think what's interesting is I haven't, I meant to Google the term so I could make sure I understood it properly. I know Nana's going to laugh at me for that. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Sound like she knows you so well, Nans. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like in some ways, I always growing up, I never felt like I was Chinese enough. Like I didn't belong to that because I didn't have the right references. There were just there was just like a list of things that I didn't meet. And it was really heartening to have that class because I spent a summer for an internship in Hong Kong. And a lot of my research, it was an internship with the think tank was on disability rights, understanding language policies. But whenever I would talk to folks in Hong Kong, the first question would be, well, why don't you do some research on why you're not more Chinese? Like you don't speak Cantonese. And I was like, well, first of all, I, I'm not a Southerner, so that's not my mother tongue. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that was that was the reaction that I was often met with. And I remember even in high school, I think talking to a friend, we're very close now, but she one time told me, she's like, if I close my eyes, when you speak Chinese, I might think that you're a white person. And I was like, you know, there's actually some white people who are very fluent. So I'm not insulted by that. (laughs) But I think that was a little bit more of the disconnect. And there are times where I wish that I had a stronger connection, but I would say more of my connection was to stories that I grew up with my grandpa reading to me when we would visit him in Waterloo or like food culture with my mom, understanding the significance of specific dishes at meals. And I think over time I realized like it's okay. And in the words of this one article, which you all can censor, it was basically like fuck authenticity because that's not Mm -hmm. real, right? Culture is constantly evolving and adaptive. And I think that's the part where I'm I'm now like, it's fine that my social circle doesn't look one way. It's okay for me to mold my culture for myself in a way that fits what I needed to. I wholeheartedly agree. I don't speak you know, again, I, I don't speak languages from the culture that I'm from. And it is, I can, hearing you is stuff that I can do. I understand foods. Um, I do speak a dialect, but it's like an English patois sort of. Um, and have gone through some of those same things of like, mm, I understand why people do this, but that's not my default. I don't right. know landmarks. I, I don't know what's the hottest thing right now, but that doesn't mean that I'm not Sierra Leonean. Um, it doesn't mean that I'm not, you know, X, Y, and Z. I wanted to ask you one more question, Steph. What are your thoughts on POC solidarity? Do you think we are out here supporting each other as people of color? Like, what are your thoughts on it? So I think people are getting a lot better at it. I remember in college, there were always these conversations. And I think you see it now in California, for instance, Prop 16, right? It's about bringing back affirmative action. What is, can you explain that a little bit? Oh, yeah, because y'all t- let go of it in yeah. colleges. And now people exactly. are like, uh, we kind of want to have it back. Right. Uh. Um, I think there's still a lot of work to be done on undoing this kind of scarcity mindset that just invades a lot of POC's minds, right? This notion that we should just fight for scraps. Mm-hmm. And... 
I think like that's one thing that we're still working through. You've seen a lot of, I follow Michelle Kim, who I really like, um, and she does a lot of writing about diversity, equity, inclusion work and unpacking a lot of the anti-blackness in the Asian community. But I think that's one thing. The other piece is really understanding intersectionality better because oftentimes I do think the experiences of black and brown folks in the US are not the same as those of folks like myself who are Asian American. And even within the Asian American community, it's very, very diverse. So East Asians, Iwa Ong has a great book that I've been reading on this, Buddha is Hiding, where she talks about the differences in uh, Asian communities of immigrants. And until we actually dig in and figure out what is it that we're reacting to? Why do we feel like we can't come together and push back? you know, get ourselves a larger piece of the pie, we won't make the progress we need to. And I myself in the workplace am often disappointed when I don't see mm-hmm. more POC like myself speak up or do the right thing. I think sometimes we assume that POC solidarity is like this grand gesture. Oh my God, I need to, it's almost like you're having like a white savior moment, but you know, it's like a little bit of yellow sailor theorism for me. Um, <laughs> It's actually smaller things and it doesn't need to be so performative. It's about pushing yourself to think about what privileges do I have, being okay with it, and then thinking, what can I do to help and not getting stuck? I definitely find myself guilty of getting stuck there and have to constantly check myself to make sure that I'm actually being helpful and not kind of getting lost in this mental swamp. Well, that's really helpful. I guess, well, now I have a follow-up to that. So thanks, Nan. Sounds really important, um, kind of heavy question. I guess, like, what are the things that you think people can do to get unstuck? Because something I've noticed with, I think no, anytime we're talking about different identities, I'm going to bring it back to the Black community. Um, you know, Black women have a particular status. Um, and sometimes it's really hard to try and work in solidarity with white women or other non-Black women because Blackness has a particular covering, right? Um, and then there's the same issue when trying to work with Black men because of the, you know, they have patriarchy, they have that the advantages of that. And so it's, um, I see it a lot of times as us as a group, not under people not understanding the privileges that we have or feeling like we all have um, like we all have things that make us underprivileged but it's really hard when you are a marginalized person to also acknowledge that you have those things I think whether we're talking about colorism and you're a lighter skinned person and it's like oh does that mean does acknowledging that I'm lighter and therefore probably get treated better and therefore statistically have this make me X, Y, Z. If I'm a person of color in the States and I have a blue passport, maybe not right now with Corona because don't nobody want us, but (laughs) in the past, right? Like how do I acknowledge that? Yes, I might be black in America and that has lack, that means underprivileged in certain contexts, but I have a blue passport. And so when I step into the airport at, you know, whatever, most of the airports in the world, I'm getting better treatment just because of this. Um, so it's I've, I find that it's hard 
for all of us to do that in those ways because we do have the ways that we we get the short end of the stick and we're getting the crumbs. Um, so I guess what are your thoughts on like concretely thinking about that or how do we actively do it? Um, it's something I try to do, but uh, I'm not, I too am not always successful at it. Yeah, I mean, I wish I had good suggestions. I think on this one, just speaking for myself, I often probably veer to the extreme of only focusing on my privilege and being very open. I've talked to my therapist about this and he's like, you are a small Asian woman, but like you're bringing the guilt as if you're a white man. And that's just not Mm -hmm. true. Um, But when I've talked to close friends, some of whom are Asian American, there's like this guilt that we tend to kind of find ourselves steeped in of like, oh, I'm Asian American. So like, yes, I'm discriminated on in some ways, but also I have all these privileges. And I think it's asking like, where does that rumination get me, right? Like I can Mm -hmm. sit there and think about it, but what does that do beyond making me feel worse? Mm -hmm. Um, And instead thinking through, well, probably my privilege is dynamic in the sense that to your point, it shifts, right? Depending on if you're in an airport versus, you know, in middle America Mm -hmm. and acknowledging that it's fluid in that sense and thinking about where are these spaces that I can make a difference and how do I just focus on that? Because I can't control everything. And frankly, it's really tiring to constantly feel burdened by all the things I should be doing. And I have all these privileges like, oh my gosh, where do I go from here? Um, But I feel like that's really, it's that pausing in the moment, acknowledging here's what I'm thinking and asking, how is this going to help me towards the next thing? Is this the best use of my energy or can I direct it elsewhere? I love that. Privilege is fluid. But depending on the space you're in, you will have, you may not have up and down. Spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steph. It is helpful to kind of think about things as like, you know, I think it's a, especially coming from a women's college, right? Women who will make a difference or make a change in the world. Remember those flags? I'm like, yes, but like we make those changes by affecting the community around us and by concrete actions that we as individuals can take. Um, So it doesn't always have to be, you know, waving a flag or doing something else. Um, It can be smaller acts of consideration and kindness. Um, And please stop taking on the guilt of white men. Yeah. Because they they have quite a bit that they could take on and they ain't doing it. I know, I know. Not not as many of them are doing it, okay? (laughs) (laughs) so don't take it on for them i guess yeah and really that's another piece of it right that like sometimes when we take on the guilt of those privileges we are indirectly absolving people who really should be taking it on so do think about that right it's like hold up hold up i don't i I don't have to hold up half the sky you should be trying to hold up (laughs) at least a little bit of it sir um so yeah thank you very much Steph. this was very very very, i learned a lot i did too yeah that's our show for today like what you heard i have an idea on a topic you'd like african.american to discuss let us know you can email us at african.american spelled out 
African dot dot American at gmail.com. See you later. Yeah.